Hey folks, and welcome to the Agency Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, James Jenkins. Thanks for joining us for another episode of this little adventure that we're all on together. I'm really glad to share this particular episode. The interview with Jerry Connery is fantastic. Jerry is an impressive, uh, bold, confident man, uh, and he has quite a bit of value to share with you guys about his journey in uh, the Freedom Jump and what he's done since then. I wanted to have a couple of very quick announcements uh, before we jump into the episode content. The first is that by the time you listen to this, by the time this episode drops, you will be able to purchase your tickets for IAOA's Innovation 21 conference. It's going to be held in Tampa, Florida at the uh, the Marriott. I'm not sure exactly what the name of the hotel is. The brand new Marriott in downtown Florida from November 4th through the 6th. I cannot recommend highly enough that you make plans to join me there. Tickets go on sale July 1st at the website iaoa.com. Just click the button for Innovation 21 tickets and I will look forward to seeing you there. The second is right along with the first announcement, and that is that I'm happy to announce that our podcast will be sponsoring two people to go to that event, IAOA's Innovation 21. We will be sponsoring two tickets that is at least a $500 value, potentially a $750 value, depending on when you purchase your ticket. The early bird, I believe, is through the month of July. Anyways, we are going to be sending someone there. Airfare and accommodations, uh, you got that yourself, but we're gonna pick up the ticket cost. Uh, That's a a $500 value. The only thing that you have to do to be considered to be our winner is send a simple email to podcast at riskwell.com and basically lay out the reason why you should get the free ticket. going to be favoring people that are not current uh, independent agency owners. I would love to bless someone who is in the middle of making their freedom jump and I know how much uh, value and benefit that will be to them just like it was for me when I was making my freedom jump two years ago. So anyways, visit IAOA.com, book uh, your trip, get your ticket for Innovation 21 And if you want to be considered uh, to be our sponsored guest at Innovation 21, then drop us an email at podcast at riskwell.com. Aside from that, let's go ahead and jump into the content for episode nine with Jerry Connery. As always, I have the same three requests from you. Subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Just hit that subscribe button and get notified when we drop the new episodes. The second is leave a review. If you like what you hear, take 30 seconds of your life and leave us that review. And third, and most importantly, share this podcast with someone you know in the captive world that needs to hear this content. We are changing lives and breaking people free from captivity and the bondage of the restricted and capped career uh, that happens when you're in the captive side of the insurance agency. So that is it for this intro. Let's go ahead and hit that uh, bumper and then get into our content for episode nine. Let's go. There are two kinds of people in the insurance industry, those who are captive and those who are free. This 
is the Agency Freedom Podcast. There is so much I wish I would have known before I made the freedom jump to the independent side. I mean, even now, I feel like I'm learning something new every single month. We're all about helping insurance agency owners and sales professionals reach your maximum potential and flex your freedom. My team and I replaced six years of captive agency revenue in 17 months with RiskWell. 17 months, man. It's crazy. This show is where I share our successes, our failures, and what I've learned along the way. We lay out a blueprint of how to make your freedom jump from captive to indie to market domination. I'm bringing you colleagues from markets across the country with dozens of different specialties. They're eager to share their stories and best practices with you. I'm your host, James Jenkins. Welcome to Agency Freedom Podcast. Let's go. Hey folks, welcome to the Agency Freedom Podcast. Uh, This is James Jenkins, your host, where we take our listeners from captive to indie to market domination. Welcome to episode nine. Episode nine. Uh, Thank you uh, for joining us. I'm very excited because this is our first outside interview. If you don't count my lovely wife, Allison Jenkins, this is our first quote unquote real interview. And I am really happy to be joined by, I can't call you my friend because we don't know each other personally, but you're definitely my colleague. This is Jerry Connery. And uh, Jerry is in Orange, California. Jerry is the principal, uh, the CEO of Connery Insurance Brokers and Risk managers. Jerry, thanks for joining us, man. Uh, happy to be here, James. I'm excited and uh, I'm honored that you'd want me to be one of your first uh, external podcast. Uh, uh, what am I? Guess, I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, you, are, uh, you are what we lovingly refer to as a freedom jumper. Uh, you wanted freedom from the captive world uh, for whatever your reasons are, which we'll get into here in this episode. And uh, you made the jump to the independent side and uh, you're very successful as we'll get into in a lot of ways. I made a commitment to our listeners, our viewers, uh, that I'm not going to do normal interviews. And it's really challenging when you have someone like a Jerry Connery who has been on the podcast tour. You know, you've been with Carruthers and Hanley and Bradley Flowers and other people in the industry. I don't want to do something that's reductive and a duplication of, of what listeners can get elsewhere. So our angle with Agency Freedom Podcast is specifically helping two groups of people. And um, sorry, you and I talked about this just a moment ago, but we're recording now, so it's all different. Uh, the, the two listeners groups that we really have with AFP is uh, first and most importantly, people that are still in the captive insurance world, agency principals, uh, producers, sales professionals, uh, people that are curious about the independent world. And then the second group is people that used to be in the captive world that have made their freedom jump, that are simply listening either for entertainment purposes um, because they just find me or the guests amusing. And obviously you have your social circle of people that are going to want to listen to this just because they think you're great and want to hear what you have to say. But that second group has already made their freedom jump and they simply want to be better. Uh, better agency principals, better bosses, uh, better managers, uh, better innovators, leaders. Um, 
So that's kind of where we're at. I, I really appreciate you making time to, to go through some of these questions here. Just to get us started, 30,000-foot uh, view of Jerry Connery, Orange, California, kind of where you're at as a snapshot right now in the life of your agency, of you as a professional man. Uh, why don't you just loop us in? Well, I, my, my agency uh, was initiated or started in 1969, so we're in our 52nd year in the business. Um, I am the third principal. Um, I bought it in uh, fourth quarter of 2001, and my first day at work was January 2nd, 2002. And in the course of the last 19 plus years, um, we've taken the business from about a 700,000 revenue to a $2.7 million revenue. And um, from four employees to 17, uh, well, it's 15 now, plus a few uh, um, virtual assistants and that. We'll talk about that in a minute, I guess. But uh, um, we're about 65% uh, uh, commercial revenue driven and 35% per personal lines uh, revenue driven. And, uh, um, and we grow about 11 to 13% um, a year, year over year. So you're still growing double digits, having been in, in business as long as you have. Uh, let that sink in, folks. Double digit growth after being in business for more than 50 years. So obviously, you've got to have some fantastic systems in place for uh, nurturing existing clients and managing that renewal process. You know, one of the things we talk about in AFP is is breaking down different life cycles and, and systems within the uh, the agency. Uh, we'll talk sales process. We'll talk service. We'll talk claims. We'll talk nurture, uh, which in my mind includes just the regular life cycle of an existing client as well as the uh, the renewal process and the long term focus. We'll get into all of that a little bit uh, later. So, you've got a pretty interesting story as we'll have a lot of our guests uh, are either going to be former captives or they're people that I bring on just because I think they add something to the overall dialogue, the narrative. They might be a vendor. They might be someone who's not a former captive like uh, Jason Cass, uh, David Carruthers, Ryan, Ryan Hanley, etc. cetera. Uh, but most of the people that are on this uh, podcast are going to be former captives who have something to share. Uh, one of the things I always want to ask my, my listeners, and I have to admit, this is the first time I've ever done a, a podcast interview, so my questions will get better over time. It's maybe a little bit elementary, so you can feel free to run with this question in whatever direction you want to. All right. You, you were in the, in, uh, in the captive world. You were with a, a well-known captive carrier, and I don't have any problems saying in a factual basis, I used to be with farmers. You're never going to hear me bash farmers, and I know from what you said earlier, um, you're not interested in that either. Um, so describe what happened at the beginning. You're a captive agent. This is back in 1988, you said it was? Yeah, 1988. Uh, I uh, um, had gone to lunch with my mom, and uh, I was... Uh, um, working in, 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 in the pinnacle of retail as a buyer and a department manager at Saks Fifth Avenue. And I can tell you, it's not going to get much better than that. Um, and uh, I'd taken her to lunch. We were done. And I'd actually stopped on the wrong floor. And I walked out. And there is a farmer's district office that had a sign saying um, that they were looking for the future farmer's agent. And I don't know what compelled me to walk through that door, but I did and ended up talking to the district manager, became an agent, 
Um, within a year and a half, I was the largest agent in, the, in, in that district, which doesn't say a lot for that district, but I'll just say that. And hmm. um, I, I maintained that growth um, and, uh, and did that for seven years. Then I was invited into um, uh, management as a district manager. And I uh, took over the Orange District, uh, and I had 31 agents, and uh, I did that for five years and became so frustrated with um, uh, a company that gave me all kinds of responsibility and not enough authority, and um, all it took was one little twig to break, and it was enough for me, and um, uh, the relationship was uh, uh, terminated. And... Um, I went out and bought the agency that I own today, um, and uh, at the time, uh, it was a 75% personalized agency and 25% commercial, but it had all the right appointments, and I built my farmer's agency on selling um, commercial and life because I didn't think auto and home took much of a sale, and so I liked actually having the, 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 the sale and the interaction with the customer and the proposal and the, 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 the hunting and the... the versus the farming part mm. um, and uh, I did uh, uh, um, uh, and, and, and the rest is is basically history I, I bought the agency and and have grown it to where it is today man I absolutely love that you know that encapsulates more than 30 years of of excellence in our industry I, you you ran through that at a clip I'm going to come back and, and cherry pick certain points of what you said. So you are in retail as a buyer for an absolutely A-plus establishment in Saks Fifth Avenue. I mean, yep. as far as retail goes, that's the big leagues. Right. So what was it about stepping off of that elevator, of seeing that district office? What was it just in general that made you think, huh, I might want to do that? Uh, tell us a little bit about what got you into the insurance game in the very first place, and then, then we'll flip the coin over and talk about your freedom jump in a little bit. So when I was 15 years old, it's 1978, and um, uh, the, the, the alpha dogs and, and um, skateboards were just be going from metal to rubber, and um, that whole industry was just beginning to take off, and I was down at the local um, shopping center with my friends on our skateboards. And I always noticed that the guy that had the nicest car um, and uh, um, came in rolling in about nine in the morning, um, rolling out about four in the afternoon was the State Farm agent. And he always looked like he was a pretty successful guy. So one day I had the chutzpah at 15 to knock on the door and go in and meet this guy. And I said, can you tell me about your career? Because I'm very interested. And he he spent about five minutes placating a 15-year-old um, and then sent me on my way, um, but he inspired me. And, um, and at one point in time, um, when I was, you know, in my senior year in high school, people were talking about what career you wanted to do, and everybody was telling me I was going to be a lawyer, I was going to go to USC, and I was going to become, you know, I don't know, a district attorney someday or something like that. That was what everybody had for me. And what did I have for me? I thought I, that, that being an insurance agency owner was the um, ultimate job because they drove the best cars and they had the best hours. And hmm. so, uh, um, and, and they, they, they didn't have to go beyond um, their four-year degree and all of that was attractive to me. Wow. And so when, I, when that door opened, I think that it was a little divine intervention, to be honest with you. I'm a, I'm a God-fearing man 
And um, I look at things as signs, and I like to associate them with God working mysterious ways. And um, and I think there's nothing mysterious about it now that you look 33 years backwards. Um, it was a clear path and plan. No, I, I can't. I can definitely uh, commiserate or, or relate to what you're saying there. I, I think it's really funny knowing. Uh, what we both know now about the State Farm business model is pretty crazy thinking uh, that guy, whoever he was, uh, he didn't own anything. He was a glorified manager. Uh, and that's, that's a completely different topic for a different day, obviously. You know, it, it really goes to show uh, how valuable it is to be aware of what the other options are, the other flavors of ice cream, uh, as it were. So you... You have an affinity for the insurance um, industry as as a whole, but I'm going to guess that you probably weren't uh, aware of all the different versions or flavors or, or varieties of the industry. At, at what point in your captive journey did you start to become aware of the other side of the fence and start to look at the other grass and other people's yards and, and think to yourself what might be? Well, I would, you know, I would go in and um, uh, let's say I was, you know, looking at a, a large restaurant that, that I was, you know, trying to win their business. And, you know, they'd say, well, I've got this broker and they can go to all these markets and um, um, they're good to me and I really have no reason to talk to you. And my reaction was, I don't know what you're talking about. Your broker has no access to my market and it's the largest market in the state of California, but you haven't ever even tried it. You have no idea what you're missing. And so that was my way of getting in as a captive agent in, when competing against um, independents. But there were plenty of times when farmers was making decisions with good business and driving it away because they couldn't find good underwriters or they didn't understand how to cookie cut um, more complicated commercial. And I was more interested in more complicated commercial because I learned very early on larger policies pay on um, the same percentage of, of commission, okay? So if it takes this much time or this much time, but the premium is this big or this big, and the commission on that is the same 15%, you know, where should your focus be? And so I yeah. always uh, appreciated looking at the more complex and the more, the larger risks. And, uh, um, and, and at Farmers, that wasn't a perfect match. I was their largest um, commercial agent in all the state of California, which is quite something. Um, and, and yet I never, was a president's council member. I was a, a, a bridesmaid many and many a time. Um, uh, but, you know, bottom line is, is that in the, in the world of, of farmers, you know, they're really about business owners policies and they're about uh, um, cookie cutters because they really don't have um, sophisticated underwriters. And because of that, um, I was frustrated because I was watching very good business leave out the door and I was contractually prevented from uh, um, going elsewhere. And so, um, when an opportunity became a district manager came along, I jumped on it. I, mm. I regret it. Um, but I will tell you, if I wouldn't have taken that step, I'd still be a farmer's agent today and I wouldn't be nearly as successful as I am. So there isn't mm. a farmer's agent in the business that makes almost $3 million in revenue. They don't exist. So, you know, there are district managers that do a million and they think that's a big deal. Um, and so when I got into the independent world, I, I learned what numbers really were and I learned what premium really was. And I stopped counting policies because policies enforced is a measure of, of captives and it's yeah. a measure of carriers. 
It is not a measure that um, insurance brokers should ever be using because it doesn't matter. If it's one policy or 12, it doesn't matter. What revenue does it generate and how many, how many, uh, um, how much of your expenses can you cover with it? That's what matters. Man, now there is a lot of meat to unpack in what you just said. That's fantastic. <laughs> no, I, I love it. You just kept on rolling off those silver bullet uh, one-liners, man. The the transition, it sounds almost like, if I'm hearing you right, the move away from being a uh, an agent to being a DM was a move kind of born out of frustration, huh? Well, no. I mean, I was a, I was a successful um, um, agent. There was frustration, of course, because you get frustrated when you have a bunch of auto dealerships that suddenly they don't want to write anymore. And now you're, having, you're, you're watching your good business and your good relationships go away. And then they don't have the, the rate or the, um, uh, um, or the product that's necessary to hang on to some of it. And so you end up losing all of it, yet the client doesn't want to leave it all. That no. to me was, that was the end of that. That, that was the moment when um, my district manager knew that I was probably going to evolve and find something different. And um, when the company was looking for leadership in the area, um, they asked me if I was interested and it was, I have to tell you, it was sexy. It made me feel good. It said, you know, Hey, we're validating you and saying everything you do is the way we want you to do it. And we want you to take what you do and show others how you do it. And I, that all was sexy to me. And so I made the move. Um, and, uh, it wasn't but a year later that I realized that it was nothing like what they promised it would be. <laughs> no, man. Yeah. You know, what I, I ended up going from is, was selling policies to selling careers to people that didn't have the same chutzpah, the same care, the same want, the same drive. And I'm trying to instill in them that. And uh, um, all I got was frustrated because I don't get people that don't get it. I never have. Um, yeah, you know, you, you show them a way, you show them a clear path, you, you try to help them understand. And when they don't get it, I don't want to spend time trying to get them to get it. I want to move on to somebody who does. Yeah. And uh, um, as a DM, that it that doesn't work in their system. They they throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall to see the few that stick. And uh, um, I spent a lot of time basically regurgitating the exact same material week after week after week. And it, it, I grew bored of it very quickly. So um, I innovated. Uh, I was the first in the entire country to create training programs that multiple um, DMs sent their people to so that I only had to work one evening a week instead of four. So on Monday, they were at my office. On Tuesday, they were at Carolyn's. On Wednesday, they were at Tom's. On, on Thursday, they were at another district manager, Joe's. And um, and in one, they were learning one thing and one, they were learning another. And each night, they were learning something new and they had more people to learn it with, which was good. Um, but uh, we, all, we all contributed our own people to um, those um, classrooms and treated everybody as if they were our own. Those were things, those were innovations that I brought to the table that had never been done before. Uh, but uh, after three years of doing that, it started to devolve. And after five years, I said, I can't do this anymore. And I was 37 years old and miserable. So, you know, who's, who's going to stay stuck in a lifetime relationship at 37 if they're miserable? Not me. So um, all farmers had to do was say one thing, and they did. We are bringing on financial services, and it's going to be your priority. And I said, I'm done. Um, and why? Because I, I, got, I had agents that couldn't um, 
complete auto applications and fire applications properly and you want me to be in position to go to jail if they don't um, do a financial services contract correctly and I didn't manage them properly, thank you, no. Oh, and all for 0.0001%, thank you. No, sorry. I'm no. going to spend too much money being your supervising um, uh, principal and uh, it generates this much revenue to me and it costs me this much, I'm not interested. So when I stood up and challenged that, I became a pariah very quickly and uh, they made me offers I couldn't refuse and I took my mm. money off this agency. <laughs> Man, you know, you are, are singing exactly the same tune that I have uh, in the first few episodes here. We didn't talk that much about my captive experience in the intro of the foundational episodes because I knew a lot of it was going to come out in these interviews sure. uh, with, with former captives. You know, I've said it a hundred times to my wife, to my, my friends and colleagues, but the only way you succeed and have real, uh, you know, accolades with the captive carrier, any of them. I mean, we're talking about specifically for our anecdotes as farmers this time, but it could just as easily be any captive carrier that has a, an agency model. They're generalists. You know, Jerry, to your point, you were the number one commercial agent in the state of California. And I don't know how the numbers were uh, when you were there. When I was uh, in, in that company, there was more than 4,000 agents in the state of California. I, um, I'm imagining being the number one commercial agent is, is a pretty big deal. But you said it yourself, you were not invited uh, to be in the president's council, which is the highest uh, honor uh, within uh, the ranks of that carrier. The whole financial services thing just plays into what I've said uh, several times already, and I firmly believe this, the only way that we as agency owners are going to succeed in the coming decade. You know, drop a pin in the calendar right now, 10 years forward from today, how many, what I... I don't mean to you know offend anybody, but the mediocre generalist who is good enough at a bunch of different things, how many of those agents are going to be around 10 years from now? And I have a hard time thinking that it's a large percentage because the only way that we are going to stay in front of the other competition, like the captives, the direct writers, the digital native carriers that some people call insurtechs, how are we going to stay in front of the commoditization of small business and of personal lines of home and auto. The only way I know how to answer that question is by becoming really, really good at one or two things that a machine can't replace and some commercial on, on TV is just not going to resonate with anybody. So to hear your story of that was the straw that broke the camel's back was the introduction of farmers financial services. You know, man, I totally resonate with that. Um, what was the process like? You said they made you an offer you couldn't refuse. This was a little bit different because you were a DM at that point. Um, the, the transition, uh, how were you able to go from the captive world and then go out to the marketplace, find a, an independent agency to purchase? I'm going to ask you a second follow-up question of how did you select which agency to purchase? Because that's a completely separate conversation that I'm sure we could talk about for 30 minutes if you wanted to. But let's talk about the transition away from the captive world. Like, okay, you've made the decision. I want out. They gave you an offer for your district, for your contract, your rights to those commissions. 
and said, here, here's the door. Would you like to walk through this? And you said, yes, please. I'd like to walk through that. What was that experience like from that moment until you were fully separated from them? And then the second question, how in the world did you pick what to do next? Well, it didn't quite go like that. Um, and I appreciate you taking the high road, but I'm going to take the low road because that's the way it really went. Um, just because there are people out there that know me and know the story and I don't want them to hear a, a, an alternative version. Um, what had happened is I stood up in that district manager's meeting. It was district managers only in the state of California. Marty Feinstein was there and others were there. And um, this is a former CEO and, and state officers and all this other stuff that was going on at the time. And I started asking questions they couldn't answer. And I kept peppering them with questions to prove that they had not thought deeply about all of this. And it became um, clear that I was anti. And when I, my questions, when I sat down and got a standing O from 134 California district managers because I basically pinned senior management against the wall, they came with a target. I put a target on my back and they came basically looking for ways to terminate me. And uh, um, one day I arrive at my office and the, and the DMM is there and I could tell by his face that, that, there, that, that there's an issue. And uh, they had found that um, I had empowered my agents to issue um, um, SR-22s that were supposed to be controlled by the district manager from the district manager's office. And I had given each of them one with instructions on how to do it. Um, and, uh, um, and, and the company decided to try to use that as, as grounds for termination. And, um, but they didn't understand who Jerry Connery was. And they didn't understand that, you know, I don't just do things innovatively. I usually get permission. And so when they um, came at me as if they were going to terminate me, I started sharing with them the story that they should know, they need to know, and that uh, it could always come out in the form of a lawsuit. And then I just turned to the state executive and said, so do you want to spend the next five years in depositions and, um, and, 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 and lawsuits that I assure you will be in the paper? Or would you like to uh, figure out a way um, for this to go away quietly? And, uh, um, and I actually said those exact words. And 30 days, I'm 30 days later, 30 minutes later, I got an email from him saying, well, what would that look like? And I laid it out exactly as I would do it, and I was tied to a no, uh, to a no word, no share. Um, I, I can't remember the term they used, but they basically put a gag order on me. But that expired three years ago or five years ago, something like that. So I could tell tell everybody what it was. But basically, um, when it comes to district managers, they get contract value too, and you get it based on the growth in the in the book and how long you were there. Um, I gave, they gave me extra time to get to the next level of contract value. They took over my lease um, and um, paid me um, off for it, bought all the equipment that I had available to me, um, and um, paid me the balance of that year's revenue because they weren't going to have a DMN, and basically anything that was running was being run based on what I had set up. And mm. it ended up being a about a 70% um, um, increase in what I was contractually owed, um, and that is... That's what I use to uh, purchase the agency that I bought. No, that sounds like, uh, you know, if you're going to make an enemy out of your carrier, um, it sounds like you exited in about the most advantageous way possible. So kudos to you, man. I, I mean, I, I remember when I was uh, in that in-between process where I had told my DM, 
I intend to sell my agency. And I'm not leaving the industry. I intend to sell my agency and immediately open an independent shop. Oh, by the way, I'm in the same city that I was before with the same natural market. And that obviously farmers hates when that happens. Uh, any captive carrier would hate when that happens. But I, I don't mind sharing this because I'm not going to name names. Uh, there was a, a North Texas uh, executive when I had the the basically the exit interview uh, with my DM and the North Texas guy and the number two guy in the state of Texas, the deputy director or whatever you want to call him. And Mr. North Texas just put on a show for his boss like he was flexing or something and basically uh, just like openly threatening me with lawsuits and everything else, trying to scare this, you know, 20 whatever, I guess, no, I guess not 20, because it was three years ago, uh, early 30s kid into staying in line. The whole reason I was in that situation, as uh, we've talked about before, was I don't fit the mold. Uh, the captive carrier wants uh, obedient little robots uh, who do exactly as they're told and stay inside the box. And if you're really, really good at staying inside the box, well, then you get pet on the head and told you're a good boy or a good little girl. And and you get to be in the cool kids club. Um, I'm not really wired for that, as anybody who knows me will well attest to. Um, but that meeting with these two people that up until that point had been allies, they had been uh, confidants. They had been advisors and mentors. And suddenly, boom, no longer an ally. No, now you, now you are an active adversary. I remember walking out of that room going, well, I'm definitely going to prove you wrong. And they basically said, uh, you're making a mistake. Uh, if you talk to any of these people, if you do any of these, if you, if you, if you, if you, we will, we will, we will. And oh, by the way, you're going to fail miserably. You need us. I'm just like, okay. We'll see how that works. And obviously here we are, you know, 4X of that book of business in two years. Uh, it took me six years to get to that point. And here we are four times that amount in two years. Uh, to your point, I mean, it's an apples and oranges conversation. So well, you know, uh, I want- It's two sales, right? You have the sale, you get to sell to the customer, but you also have to sell the risk to the risk taker. When you only have one risk taker and they've only got one attitude towards risk, well, yeah. you, you, you're really, you're starting with one arm tied behind your back. And I didn't yeah. realize that until I realized it. When I realized it, I realized that I needed to go and have um, greater capacity. Uh, I understood how to sell to the customer. I needed to find more risk takers because I had no problem finding the customers. I was having difficulty selling the risk to the risk taker. Yeah. And now... I hear the opposite. All these people have this plethora of markets. They've got all these places to go and they have no customers to sell to. And I just scratch my head and wonder how and why. But, but there's so many people that believe that they can build a website and suddenly people will just come to it. They can hang their sign outside and suddenly people are going to, the phone's going to start ringing off the hook. It takes relationship, network, market, effort, centers of influence. All the things that I did that I was both a farmer and a hunter. And that was the difference between maybe you and me and the, and the typical agents in the world of cap, captive agents is that farmers wanted you to farm. They wanted you to go out there and create your little neighborhood um, thing and you get your referral from realtors and escrow officers and mortgage brokers and pr property managers and stuff like that. Um, but I loved the hunt. I liked going out and finding the, 
the big game and, and, and taking it down. And so I built an organization that did the farming for me so that I could hunt. And, uh, and, and, and I didn't like just hunting. I liked to hunt knowing that there was a bear out there for me to, 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 to take down. And so um, I built a team that would make appointments for me and, and um, um, develop opportunities. And, and that's really what helped me to succeed. And every time a new market would come along, I'd learn very quickly what that market brought that others didn't. And then I would, instead of trying to retrofit clients to them, I did the exact opposite. I figured out what they were looking for, and then I went and found people that looked like that. Yeah. It was so contrary to the way the typical agent thinks and works. And I got to tell you, it's still a successful formula. So anybody out there that's listening, um, you might want to think about re-engineering the way you go about seeking new business, and you might find that you will have uh, um, um, uh, put, your, uh, put your hook in the right pond um, with the right bait. Well, when it comes to the carrier relationship, I don't, I'd love to get your feedback on this. And I, I definitely want to ask the question that we will ask everybody. Um, I'll get to that question here in just a second. The, the whole concept of stewarding carrier relationships, uh, of nurturing that contract in, in a sea of contracts, I think that may be one of the most difficult structural challenges for someone who's coming out of the captive world because i was certainly completely oblivious to the way of the world i stepped all the way in it uh with a, a safeco underwriter i wasn't even officially launched my agency yet uh, i was getting my appointments collecting all the things and and uh i had a guy that refused to give me a, a homeowner's code it was, he was only going to give me an auto code he said you can't have a homeowner's code where your office is located and i didn't know any better at the time i didn't know you can't talk to a, a, a rep or an underwriter like this but i said well john i'm a little confused here because i can go to safeco through this aggregator over here or this one over here or that cluster over there or that you know group over there and i can get a homeowner's code with safeco without any problem so why would I go direct to you if I don't get the homeowner's code when I can go to any of those people and get to Safeco and get the homeowner's code? And man, I just stepped all the way in it because I didn't understand you don't talk to people like that in the independent world. It was disrespectful. It was unprofessional. And it was just foolish of me. Look, I tell that story as the perfect example of something that a captive agent fundamentally does not understand until you learn hopefully you don't have to learn the hard way hopefully you like i did <laughs> hopefully you're listening to this podcast and you're you're hearing someone say you got to be really careful with your carrier relationships the way that you talk to them the way that you communicate the way that you set them up because your carrier relationships are absolutely crucial in how you run your agency so to your point uh, going out and getting another one in my opinion, should be a carefully thought out and planned exercise. How does that carrier fit into the bigger picture? What, to your point, what do they want to see? What is that underwriter looking for as far as appetite? How is that different from the other underwriters out there? Because, I mean, if all you're doing is collecting carrier appointments like Beanie Babies, well, you're going to have a real problem a year or two from now when half of those carriers are mad at you. Right. And... Termination from a carrier, it's a pretty rare thing that they'll reactivate ever. Um, yeah. the, the next generation of management is not going to second guess or question the decision of a prior generation of management. 
And even though you may have evolved, it doesn't matter. Um, you might have to prove yourself by going through one of those aggregators or by going through um, uh, those uh, clusters. Um, that might be the only way that you can get access. Uh, and then when you do that, you are giving up something else. And uh, um, so, yes, the relationship with insurers is very important. But let me just say this, James. Um, I am not an ass kisser. And uh, um, I, I, I don't know if I can really. That, I'm surprised because you see. No, no, I'm late. <laughs> I, I get that vibe from you. No, but, but let me let me tell you something. I get deep respect, okay, and I earn it, okay. I don't expect it. I earn it. Yeah. And the way I get that respect is because my applications are complete. My submissions are complete. I give them plenty of time to do their job. I ask them what they're looking for, then I deliver the kinds of things they're looking for. I try to understand what they expect from us, and then I try to ex, um, to overdeliver um, and underpromise. That's who we are. But once we have that relationships, and once we cemented it, and once we have um, um, created an environment in which they actually understand what we're capable of doing, then I be, then I flip it, and I become the guy who's demanding, and I become the guy that says, "Look, I've got all these markets that are interested in this risk. Why should why should you be the one getting special treatment here?" This is where, the way it's going to go. I need all the quotes back by this date and time. I'm going to take the top three. I'm going to let everybody know where they are in rank. I'm not going to tell anybody about anybody else's quote. I'm going to give you exactly one more day to come back with your best number. And then I'm going to present all three of those to the customer. And that's what Connery Insurance Brokers does. When we go to market and we, if we go to market and see 13 proposals, my client sees 13 proposals. And you might think that that's crazy, but let me tell you something. If you aren't making it clear that you broker, then they'll think that they have to go to other brokers to compete against you when you are actually the most effective way for them to see what the market looks like. But those of you that go out there and pr pretend to go to market and tell the client, oh, I went to all these places and this is still the best and you haven't seen um, the carrier move in nine years, I'm going to tell you right now, your client and is not getting fooled by the BS, only you are. Hmm. And somebody like me is going to come along, is going to take that account from you, and you'll never have a chance to come in through the back door. It will be over. And why? Because they're going to recognize that I can do all the things that you do, but that I actually go to market. And I do that through leverage. I use um, systems and processes to allow us to get to all those places in the marketplace. But um, we don't talk about it. We actually do it. And it's a lot of work. And, and when carriers come and say they want to pay us one commission for new business and one commission for renewal, I'm, I quickly push back on that. And I say, if you think it's less work for me to do a renewal than it is new business, then you don't understand who we are and what we do for business. And I get them to understand and see how we operate. And, and then, I, I, frankly, I just need you to know, every flipping appointment is negotiable. Just know that going in. Every yeah. one of them. Well, especially if you've got data to support what you're asking for, if you're coming to them with a very specific plan, I mean, case in point, you get a better return if you're asking for more and you're able to back it up. Yep. The, um, you, you touched on a couple of things there I definitely want to, to address. Before we move on, I really want to just ask the simple question that, that I will be asking every interview. Uh, when you think about 
getting off the ground. It was an existing agency, so it's a little bit different for you. You purchase an existing book, an existing agent, an existing office, existing staff, existing processes. So your answer is going to be a little different uh, than someone who's starting something scratch, of course. What do you identify as your biggest hurdle to overcome to get past that initial, I'm starting a new thing phase? What was that hurdle and how did you overcome uh, your biggest challenge of launching uh, your Connery insurance brokers and risk managers? In, and was it 2000, 2001? In fourth quarter of 2001 is when I negotiated and, um, and made the purchase. And then my first day was January 2 of 02. So right in the middle of the fallout from September 11th, you're in the middle of a massive career change. Yes. Wow. Boy, that yeah. is, that's incredible timing, man. No, yeah. I'd love, I'm really eager to hear this answer then. Well, I mean, why did I buy an agency? Because I had a 5,000 square foot home and I had obligations. So I had to figure out a way to instantly have um, income. And the way you have income is to leverage um, future income in order to have um, a loan that you can manage um, over time. And it gives you a margin that allows you to pay yourself. And so I went and found a book of business that I could buy, um, and I I took and I I put uh, you know 10% of my own money down, and the uh, seller carried back 10%. So I, I net financed um, 80, and it was um, kind of a boon year for SBA. They finally were looking at insurance agencies and books of business and um, goodwill and consider it collateralizable. In 2000, uh, in 1999. An insurance book of business was not collateralizable in the, in the eyes of the SBA. It wasn't mm. real property. It wasn't personal property that they could go and get a, a VIN number on and say, this is ours if you don't make the payment. And mm. you know what? Ask me this. Ask me what the failure rate is of SBA loans in the world of insurance. It's less than 1%. Mm. It's one of the best performing loans in the SBA world right now. And so why? Because when you buy a going concern, a book of business, it, yes, you're going to have um, challenges with retention. Yes, you're going to have challenges with um, things that evolve. But in the end, um, it, it, as long as it is a homogenized book, it's not you know five clients that represent 20% of the revenue each, but um, a book that uh, um, isn't too top heavy, um, then it's very predictable, the outcome, the retention, all of that. And if you have standard factors and you're somebody who's achievement oriented like I am, so you set them as targets, um, then everything else I reverse engineered backwards. If I if I need to have a 90% retention, um, what's it going to take? And, and what does 91 look like? And how much more profit do I make if I make my retention 91 instead of 90? And it's amazing what one more point of retention does to your profitability. In my world, one point of retention is seven profit points. Hmm. Okay? Wow. So I today run an agency. It's just under $15 million total property and casualty. And we run a 92.4% retention rate. Wow. And that is retention measured the right way. What, so what's your what's your average revenue or uh, revenue or premium, whichever one's easier for you, uh, per account? Well, um, I think the best way to talk about that is by dividing it between personal and commercial. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, on the commercial side, 
which generates about uh, um, 1.9 million of revenue, we have 850 clients. Cool. So you do the math. Um, yeah. I, I, whatever that is, I'm not even sure because I don't quite measure. That's not one of my KPIs right now. So you got $2,200 in revenue uh, per account in commercial, 2235 for those of you that are doing your math at home. Well, that's, that's great. No, I, I love well, those numbers. If you divide that by 14%, you could figure out what my average premium is per policy or per account. And then you start to understand that we're, we are account-driven, not policy-driven. That's why I try to talk to people about revenue instead of policies in force. I, every time I hear PEIF, it just makes my skin crawl because I think this poor person just doesn't even know how to measure the right way. And until you learn the right way to measure, you're never going to grow to the level you want to be. It's just you won't. Hmm. No, I have absolutely no arguments there, man. It's one of the things I find myself saying over and over again is you can't cash premium at the bank. Um, so it's it's definitely a great way to to pick a captive agent out of a crowd. You know, or they go to premium or unit count first, or they go into revenue first. So, right. you know, we are going on uh, almost forty five minutes here. I definitely want to be respectful of your time. You know, you've you've got a staff of you said about fifteen people. You've got very clearly defined processes and systems. You have put a lot of effort, I'm sure into making sure that everything that happens in your agency from from top to bottom and every role uh, within your team is very clearly defined and intentional and repeatable. Uh, tell me just a little bit about how uh, you set that up and how you maintain something like that. Is that something that you did or did you hire for it? Uh, did you bring in a consultant? Help me understand how in your life stage, uh, in the, the life cycle of your agency, how do you stay in front of training and development and just process management? Well, for one, I'm an MBA in finance and, um, uh, and I use analysis and I use my financial um, knowledge uh, to grow business and to sell insurance. Um, I'm probably a rare bird in that I don't even start a conversation with a potential client without looking at their financials. And uh, yeah. people don't even know how to ask for that. They don't know why to ask for that. They don't know how to use it in the, in the course of underwriting. And yet I can't underwrite without it. Um, uh, process. So ch I checked all three of those boxes, by the way, James. Um, process, yes. Um, uh, some of it I used consultants to help me. Some of it I invented on my own. Some of it was born through the management system and, and the evolution of, the, of, of learning the management system. Today, um, I don't even know how to sign into AMS 360. I don't care. It's not an area. As a principal, um, it isn't important for me to get into the weeds and to understand um, how to uh, um, upload a policy or download a policy um, because I have managers and departments that can do that. But I will tell you that if, I, if, if it was 2002 again, at that moment in time, I knew that system backwards and forwards. But here I am 20 years later, and I'm kind of three generations of managers later, at this point in time, I have one general manager. He reports to me. Everybody else reports to him. And, um, and, and in that process, I have folks basically set things up. I look at myself as the surgeon, and I very particularly choose surgeon because I don't prep the, the, the patient. Um, I come in with my hands up like this, and I go to work. The patient's already on the table. Anesthesia is already uh, prepared. Um, I do my thing. Then I walk out of the room and somebody else closes it up. 
and then I put them on their um, stewardship campaign. And, uh, um, and this is how we go from being promise um, uh, uh, makers to promise keepers is the stewardship. So there's a process for stewardship, there's a, and which is also retention and relationship. There's a process for um, uh, service, um, and there's a process for prospecting and selling. And, uh, um, and each of those processes are driven by others, okay? Um, and it doesn't matter who the producer is in the agency, and there's only three of us right now, um, and I can't even imagine how much bigger I'm gonna be when I get five or six, um, but uh, I only grow them about one every three or four years because I don't, I, I, I trust, but I verify, okay? Yeah. Um, in other words, I teach them what, what they learn, but they have to prove to me that they actually understand it, have um, um, developed it. I do not let them, um, just like the model of medicine, um, they may have an MD degree and they may be, um, they may have doctor in front of their name, but we're not gonna give them any privileges in the hospital until they've proven that they understand um, medicine in the way that it needs to be properly understood. And so they go through their residency, then they go through their internship or, or whichever order that's supposed to be in, um, and then they evolve. And so um, we help the producers go from, um, the one thing we can't do is we can't teach them relationship. So we find people that are in the relationship business that are very, very good at it. And then not unlike your mentor, David Carruthers, I will take people up from other industries and I will teach them how to, uh, um, successfully transition into insurance, and uh, those are that's those are traits that both David and I have. David has perfected it because I've always had money to spend on this, and he, when he was perfecting his, he had no money to spend on it. Well, his way was better, okay. And I'll tell you, you need to listen to his podcast and understand what he does, um, because it's awesome. And uh, even I, a year ago, sat. In, mesmerized for an hour and a half just listening to what this guy was doing and why because he told me that sure i didn't have any money i couldn't do that so i had to figure out a way to do it without money well i love that attitude because the thing is is that when you get to um certain sizes you think you can fix every problem with money and i will tell you you can't and um diving deep shaking the etch a sketch recognizing what you don't know and 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 doing the research and and that Instead of hiring somebody and, and thinking that's going to solve the problem, instead of throwing money at the problem, thinking that's going to solve the problem, you got to end up owning it. Um, I didn't think that I would ever use a VA. Okay, I would never find myself as a patriot of this country shipping jobs out of the United States. Just to me, it's just ludicrous that anybody would do that. And now today I have three of them. Why? Because for one, I had an epiphany. We are a world economy today, and it's important that the, it doesn't matter how well people are doing in Orange County. If the rest of the world is suffering, it, it doesn't matter. Your, your quality of life is not going to be better with others suffering. The second thing I learned is, is that the jobs they're taking are the ones no one here wants, or I would have already hired somebody to do it. So I flipped the page on that. We brought in our first two PA, uh, uh, VAs uh, a year and a half ago. Now we're up to our third, um, and I count them as part of my employees. I have 12 W-2s, and I have three um, um, uh, employees that are, are through Staff Boom, um, and they're out of the Philippines. And I will tell you, they've got emails that say my email. They um, interact with clients only in a reactive way. Mostly they assist my key employees. And my key employees, I can hire people now because I could tell them they have a personal assistant. 
And I will tell you that that's going to get let me hire them away from you because I'm doing something for them that you, you as a as a as a competitive employer are not doing. Um, that's how I'm using VAs as personal assistants to the most important account executives and account managers in the agency. No, I lo- love that, man. You you answered the question before I could ask it, so. There's so much more that I would ask. Uh, I love how this thing developed organically. I definitely want to be respecting your time and our listeners' time. Uh, sure. The last question I will ask, and you can take this in any direction you want to take it. If you're talking to one of our listeners uh, without going into are you captive, are you independent, if there's only one thing that you would tell someone to do if you're going to be successful in your journey in the insurance industry, you have to do this action oriented. Cause I love the, the theory, the concept, those are great. I want to stay as action focused as I possibly can. What kind of action advice would you give for our listeners as we wrap up? Wow. That's a loaded question. And it's hard to pinpoint into a laser focused single answer. I'll do mm-hmm. my best. But I think care and passion are two things that have to be commercialized or commoditized, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that I bring care to a whole new level when it comes to my clients, and they reward me with referrals as a result, okay? They feel appreciated. They feel like we are in it with them. Um, we sit on the same side of the table as them, and all the market is on the other side, and we together work to find the best solution for them. That is one thing that we do. The other thing that we do is that we um, um, we leverage passion. And so I have a young man coming in on August 2nd. He's a recent graduate of Temple University's risk management program. He's traveling right now in a U-Haul truck from um, Pennsylvania to uh, California. Um, he's a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 23-year-old that for the first time is going to see a, a West Coast beach and uh, all the cute girls that are on the beach there. And I'm worried about whether or not I'm going to be able to get him into the office to work when he sees it all. (laughs) Uh, But nonetheless, he's coming here. Why? Because he has a um, a, a deep-seated understanding of risk management, which I think most insurance producers lack, to be honest with you. I think most of the people that are licensed in the world of insurance sales are peddlers of policies. They are not managers of risk. And because of that, I can teach him how to sell insurance. I can teach him how to do what he does. But what he brings in his passion is his love for certain industries that I can evolve into ways that he can um, leverage that love. And um, through that love, others will want to do business with him. And so, um, uh, you know, for instance, let's say his, uh, his passion was tennis. Okay, I mean, it's not, but I'm just pick one. It's tennis. Well, there's people who make tennis rackets. There's people who train in the world of tennis. There's facilities that have tennis. There's um, um, uh, distribution centers that do um, uh, sporting goods. There's all kinds of ways that a person who has passion for tennis can bring and evolve it into the world of insurance. They take that passion for the industry that they're in, and then they leverage the thing that those industries have to buy. They don't have a choice. They have, they have employees, they have to have work comp. They have a building, they have to have property cover. They, have, um, they lease a building, they have to have liability. They're selling a product, they have to have liability. They have a service, they have to have liability. They drive a car, they have to have insurance for that vehicle. Okay, So I'm not selling something that they are buying 
by choice. I'm, I'm selling something that they're compelled to buy. But why not choose me rather than somebody else to buy it from? And when you realize that question is the right question to ask and answer, then you will build in your sales process a way that differentiates you, James. And I believe that anybody that's listening right now, whether they're on the side of the um, chained or on the side of the unchained, okay, they still struggle to find the next opportunity for a sale. And I'm sharing that, you know, if you don't know what to do next, then what are you passionate about? And figure out how to leverage that passion to, for people to see you passionately do what you do. For me, I love community. I love church. I love education. So getting involved in those three areas has given me a, um, a plethora of business opportunities as my centers of influence. They see me be selfless in those industries, um, and then they turn around and let me be selfish in the way that I can be in assisting them solve their problem. And that's what I've done, and I've done it for 33 years, and I'll do it for the next seven or eight when I finally retire. Um, and in the next seven or eight, I've got to figure out who's going to end up owning this business and perpetuating it for me. So that's why I go out and recruit and why I go out and, and try to hire the next great producer because someday they're going to take and leverage this agency to buy me out because that's the only thing that makes any sense. And uh, um, um, my legacy will live on. Their legacy will begin. And, uh, um, and, and it's win-win all the way around. And so the one thing you have on the independent side is that the ability to leverage your ownership, the equity in your book and in your business. And like James intimated in the very beginning, State Farm folks don't really have that kind of equity. They just have a contract that says they'll pay them so much when they go away. And I'll state the same thing. And I, there are others with other programs and processes, and I don't know them all, and I'm not, I'm not putting them down one bit. I have great friends that are still farmer's agents, some of my best friends. By the way, they're some of my biggest referrers, too. You know? Yeah. Have- we, we didn't even have a conversation on that entire side of, you know, sales, marketing, channel partners, we'll et cetera. We'll we'll, yeah, well, there's plenty of meat left on this bone. I'm confident yeah. of that. Jerry, this has been great. I really appreciate you being uh, the first outside interview that we've done, uh, bes- besides my wife, the, the first one out in the wild. If, if someone wants to, to, to follow you, to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, you know, you can check out my website at uh, conneryinsurance.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at, at Jerry Connery um, and at Connery Insurance. Um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, and I have about uh, 1,500 connections there that are true connections. I, people that I don't know, I really don't connect to, but people I do know or people who reach out in the right way asking for a connection will get a connection. You could say you heard me on a podcast, and that'll get you connected. Um, and, uh, um, and that's about it. I am, I, let me tell you, I'm a lot more steak than I am sizzle. Okay. And, uh, I've got a lot of friends out there that, that sell insurance on a sizzle basis. Um, but I'm really about the steak and, uh, my clients know that. And, um, the people that work for me know that, um, and my colleagues that know me know that. And that differentiator means that I'm, I'm a little bit less sexy. Um, but, uh, uh, uh there's a lot more substance and that, you know, it's, it's education, James. That's really it. I hope to hear from some of your um, podcast listeners because in the end, I want you to know it's scary, but you can do it. 
I'll encourage you in any way I can. If I can teach you shortcuts, I'm happy to help you. I've helped a lot of people over the years, um, and uh, I'm happy to help you if you're somebody looking for that help. No, I think that's a perfect way to end it here. Thank you to my guest, Jerry Connery of Orange, California, the principal of Connery Insurance Brokers and Risk Managers. I really appreciate you joining me uh, today. Folks, that's it for this episode. Uh, I will make the same three requests I make every episode. Subscribe, leave a review, and share this with someone that you know needs to get it. And that's really it for, uh, for this episode nine of the Agency Freedom Podcast. I am your host, James Jenkins. We are here to take our listeners from captive to indie to market domination. Make it a great day, boys and girls. We will talk to you soon.